Okay, everybody, let's, let's start. Can I ask you to join me in a moment of silence? Let's get ourselves centered. Let's invite God into this deal. Let's have a moment of silence. Let's get centered and invite God into this deal. Okay? Hey, everybody, I'm James. I'm an alcoholic. Welcome back for the afternoon session. We lost a few. One of the jitter joints took their clients up for a hike someplace. I think hiking's got a pretty poor record of keeping folks sober, but uh, I guess maybe if somebody's talking about traditions this afternoon, they want to go take a hike. I want you to look. You know, I go to a lot of these events. I go to a lot of roundups and conventions. Uh, I mean a lot. I love these things. I love these retreats. And it's funny how on Saturday night, the crowd's always four times what it is on Sunday morning. Same thing, you know, here, we lost a lot of people. But I tell you what, if you want somebody that's going to save your life, you don't look around at the Saturday night crowd. That's got the body shoppers and the social climbers and whatever else. You look around on Sunday morning and see who shows up on Sunday morning. It's the same thing this afternoon. Look around. We're the people that are supposed to be here. We're the... Listen, I didn't go out there and expect to get half drunk. I was a mad dog alcoholic. I wanted everything that was out there, and I wanted it in doubles. And when I got into this program, I wanted the same thing. I wanted the whole deal. I wanted to be with you people. I had this hunger and this thirst. You know, the carpenter said many years ago, he said, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. I'll tell you what, he was talking about alcoholics. You know, he didn't seem to have much use for the lukewarm people, and I don't either. You know, give me a man that's hungry and thirsty. And that describes alcoholics. Describes alcoholics. We had this thirst. Bill Wilson, writing some years afterwards, and you remember we left him drunk down there on Clinton Street still. We're going to get back to him in just a second. Writing a few years later after he got a little clearer insight in it, he described us alcoholics as rebellious nonconformists. Unable or unwilling to conform to the laws of God or man. Now, can anybody in this room identify with that? <laughs> yeah. Tell me you can't, and I'll show you. Just in a second. Just out of pure perversity. Just the way we are. It's the way we're put together. Oh. Phil was in exactly the same shape in late November 1934 as James was in in that first year and a half in AA. You've heard the expression of having a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. When you're sitting at the boucherie bar trying to explain to Gus the bartender about the 12 steps and you're ordering doubles and he's looking at you like you're from another damn planet. You know, huh? Tell me more about that. Give me a double, Gus. You know, and... Bill was in exactly that same position those last, uh, that last week of November and the first week of December of 1934. Because Ebby had carried a message to him. Ebby carried a message in two ways. First of all, Ebby was sober. Bill knew Ebby was a drunk. They had been drunk together since they were late teenage years. You know, Bill started drinking when he was about, about 19 or 20. Ebby had uh, been drinking earlier than that. They had many drunks together. One time they even... Uh, and it's mentioned in the literature that even chartered an airplane that heard the uh, Manchester, Vermont was going to open its airport. And uh, so they decided they wanted to be the first ones to fly in there. So they found a pilot 
And uh, the, the pilot was already having a few drinks, so they bribed him with a, with a $20 bill and a fifth of whiskey to fly them in there so they could beat all the other airplanes and, and get in there and be the first plane to land there. Well, they drank the fifth of whiskey on the way over there from, uh, from Albany, New York. And uh, by the time they had come time to land, the uh, mayor was out there, the high school band was out there. They were rehearsing because they were going to have the formal landing of the first plane the next day. So instead of here, this plane comes in. It's going to be the first plane to land. And it lands. And, and the band's playing and the mayor's cheering and everybody said, we got a plane a day ahead of time. But Bill falls out of the cockpit. Eddie falls out of the cockpit. The pilot falls out of the cockpit. Hell, they're all drunk. They're all drunk. This is the kind of guys we're dealing with. You know? And talking about Eddie Thatcher, we got a newcomer in here, Kevin. Where are you, Kevin? There you are. There you are. Who's from New York, who has been drunk in Thatcher Park in Albany, New York. Isn't that right? Yeah. So it's a good place to drink. Good place to drink. Yeah, you're in the right place, Kevin. Uh, so, Eddie was sober. As it says in our book of experience, Bill had never seen him in that condition. Just never seen him that way. Never seen him that way. We've all had the experience, and it's a powerful experience, of seeing somebody, maybe not all of us. You know, I didn't have that experience really until I've been sober a couple of years, running into somebody that I'd known drunk, and then they were sober. And it's an incredible experience when you see it. I remember running into Mike, a uh, guy who was behind, Lewis, rather, who was a couple of years behind me in school. And I didn't recognize him. I literally didn't recognize him. Gone to high school, a couple of years behind me, known him for years. He looked like a completely different person. And he had a couple of years sobriety. So that was the first impact. The second impact was that Eddie had carried to Bill a message that there's a way out. Bill had been trying to find a way out. He'd been going to the town's hospital. Towns Hospital was the fanciest drying out joint in the country then. It was the Betty Ford Center of the 1930s. If you were rich, if you were famous, if you had a buck, you went to Towns Hospital. It's on Central Park West in New York, which is the toniest address you're going to find. I mean, that's expensive real estate right, right in there, you know. And uh, the only way he could get in there, because Bill was broke, was his brother-in-law, Dr. Leonard Strong, who had married Bill's sister, uh, happened to be a very successful doctor and happened to know Charlie Towns, who had the hospital. So... Towns was uh, putting Bill on the cuff to, to put him in there because uh, Dr. Strong was a good friend of his. Incidentally, I just found out the other day that Dr. Strong is still alive today, Bill's brother-in-law. He's in a nursing home in New York. He's like 102 years old, but he's still alive. I, I know that. But, uh, uh, he played a very important part in our family because he got Bill in the jitter joint. you know. And in there, Bill got a message carried to him. You know, we had talked earlier about Dr. Benjamin Rush saying alcoholism may be some kind of an illness. There may be something wrong with these people. They may not just be moral lepers. They may not just be essentially evil people. There may be something wrong with them. That idea kind of floated around and nobody had ever really been able to latch on to it. When the stock market crashed in 1929, sort of like what happened to our dot-com stocks here a year or two ago, you know, and everybody went broke, there was a, a, a New York neurologist named... Uh, Dr. Uh, William Silkworth, who uh, was very, very well-to-do, lost every nickel he had in the stock market crash of 29, had semi-retired, so he didn't have a medical practice left, went to work for Charlie Towns for something like 30 or $40 a week. You know, doctors weren't making a lot of money in those days. In fact, you had a job at all. A third of the country was unemployed. One-third of the people did not have any kind of a job whatsoever. It was tough times. Silkworth went to work for Charlie Towns there because it was a respectable job and uh, he didn't have any experience in that field, but he quickly gained some. He became, in A parlance, the little doctor who loved drunks. 
For some reason, he really attached to us. He wanted, he, he, but he kept treating us time after time after time, and we all kept showing back up drunk again. He'd get somebody sober and uh, keep him in there for a week or a couple of weeks, and then they'd come back again. Dr. Silkworth was later to write a paper. He's a very prominent doctor. He was to later write a paper in the late 1940s where he described the 40,000 alcoholics that he had treated over the in previous 20 years. 40,000. His estimate was, and you remember that estimate before from public health services, that 1 to 2 percent of those drunks ever achieved any kind of sobriety, except for Alcoholics Anonymous. But in the meanwhile, Dr. Silkworth was a bright guy, smart guy. He had observed these drunks, and it finally was occurring to him, because he'd see guys get drunk, uh, not just when things went bad, but he'd see them get drunk when things went good. You know, the only thing worse for an alcoholic than adversity is prosperity. You know, we get drunk in the good times, we're drunk in the bad times. Doesn't much matter. You know, get drunk when nothing's going on. It started to occur as he observed one drunk after another drunk after another drunk that there was some physical factor at work in alcoholics that wasn't at work in anybody else. Somehow they seemed to react differently to alcohol. Somehow alcohol seemed more important to them, seemed to do more to them, more for them. And he came up with a theory that, and he called it an allergy, discussed in the doctor's opinion in our big book. And an allergy is nothing more than an abnormal reaction to a food or a drug. You know, if 95% of the people on the face of the earth can, can eat cucumbers, and 5%, like myself, get acute, terrible indigestion immediately from even a cucumber that's part of a salad that I'm eating and go into this horrible indigestion, then I'm allergic to cucumbers. The rest of the population is not allergic. I just have an abnormal reaction. Most of you out there can eat cucumbers. I discovered that when I was in my late 20s. Cucumbers don't work well with me. Guess what I did? I stopped eating cucumbers. I have never had to go to Cucumbers Anonymous. I did not have to get a cucumber sponsor. I have never obsessed over cucumbers in the middle of the night. I just didn't do any more cucumbers. Silkworth, on the other hand, noticed the alcoholics kept going back to it time and time and time again. He said, I know there's something physically wrong with these guys. It isn't just a mental failing. When, when they take a drink, they develop what's called a phenomenon of craving. There's something in their body that's demanding more alcohol. And it doesn't happen with the rest of the, of the drinking populace. When they say they've had enough, they really mean they've had enough. When they say they're out of control, they're feeling uncomfortable and out of control, they stop. They really are. They don't know about that, what we talked about earlier, that promised land on the other side of out of control, which is, yeah, I never had that feeling in my life. No matter how drunk I was, if I couldn't get up off the floor, I still felt I was in control of the situation. Huh. So, physical abnormality, and then he said they had something he called a mental obsession. That they were absolutely, an obsession is an idea that's so powerful that it crowds out every other idea. Every other idea. Think back to your first great lust. Susie or Mary or, or whatever her name was. You just can't think about anything else. You just can't think. God, you just, just, you know, just, just got you all the time. You know, you just. And he said it was something like that. It was an idea that crowded out every other idea. So he got the idea that there was an obsession of the mind. He didn't know where it came from, but he said these these people are obsessed. And uh, uh, when they take any alcohol at all, and he they they have to drink more, and they drink and drink until they until they get drunk. 
He had conveyed these ideas to Bill. Bill understood them intellectually. He understood them intellectually. He understood he wasn't supposed to drink. Uh, Bill's last drunk started uh, when he was on a bus, and he's explaining all this to a guy that was on the bus with him. The bus had an accident. Stopped. They went into a bar. He's still explaining. The guy he'd been explaining to says, You must be crazy. You told me you were going to go crazy or die if you drink. Are you crazy? And Bill said, Yeah, I must be. Yeah, I must be. Ever had that feeling? James had that feeling. So here's Bill with a... He, he has the knowledge. He knows what's wrong with him. Dr. Silkworth has described the illness. Described the illness. But he doesn't have a plan of recovery. He doesn't have any, any way out of it. He doesn't know. And here Evie shows up and says, I got religion. He'll say, oh, shit. You got what? I got religion. But Bill, you figure out your own concept of God. Mainly, I've just done these simple things. And what he was doing was giving him a head full of AA, although they wouldn't call that at the time. But he had a belly full of booze. Bill was in torment for the next two weeks. And Abby came back to see him. He, Bill kept drinking, kept drinking. Finally, it occurred to Bill that he had to try this thing. He had to try this thing. And on December the 11th of, of, of 1934, Bill managed to get three bottles of beer on credit at the local grocery store. And the only reason he got three is that's all the guy would give him. That was the limit of his credit. He got on a subway and he went, to ta- went back to Towns Hospital. And he showed up there drinking the last beer, waving the beer bottle and telling Dr. Silkworth, Doc, I found something. And Dr. Silkworth said, yeah, it sure looks like you have. Go upstairs and go to bed. Silkworth's thinking, oh, here's that poor guy back again. You know, this is the guy that uh, I'd hoped so much for, but he ain't going to make it. He ain't going to make it. And Bill goes up there and they sober him up over the next, uh, the next day or so. Ebby shows up. Uh, Abby hears he's in there. Uh, Lois called Abby and told him this. And uh, Bill says, would you repeat that simple little formula to me? And Abby tells him once again. He says, well, we just try. We just admit we're licked. We uh, uh, try to get honest with ourselves in a way that we never have before. And we find that the only way we can do that is by talking our case over in confidence with somebody else. And we try to make restitutions for any harms we've done. And uh, we go try to help somebody without any hope of any reward or payment. And uh, we pray to whatever God there might be for helping in doing this. Bill's turning this over in his head, and he's thinking, I can do all this, but I can't pray. I just don't believe in a personal God. I just don't believe in it. You know, you've offered me a way out that I can't get. And I can identify with Bill on this. You know, I could believe in a remote God, a God that had, that had started the universe off, that had sort of like uh, General Motors, you know, that had made my Chevrolet, it shipped it down to Louisiana, but uh, they weren't going to honor the warranty. It was out of warranty. You know, don't, don't expect any help from up there. And Abby was talking to him about a personal God. And Bill lay in torment in his hospital room midday, December 14th, 1934. And you can read the story in, in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous. You can listen to it on, on tapes. He tells it especially well in that talk back there at Georgia in 1951 that uh, Virgil has. You can find it in the book, Pass It On. Wonderful biography of Bill Wilson. Wonderful biography. That Bill lay there in torment. And finally, he, when he was so depressed, he, 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 had, he had reached the absolute bottom because he saw no way out of it. And he cried out, God, if, 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 if you're there, show yourself to me. And Bill recounts that the room lit up, that he felt a presence, uh, a spirit. He felt he'd been lifted to a mountaintop and that a clean wind, not of, uh, of wind but of spirit, was blowing through him. 
he made this remarkable statement then and every other time he made the talk. He said, I felt I was a free man at last. I felt a free man at last. And he thought, this must be the God of the preachers. He has what's, what is called a true spiritual experience. God came and visited Bill in that hospital room. Bill never knew how long that lasted. It could have lasted a few minutes or 30 minutes or however long it lasted. I don't know, but it, it eventually subsided. And this is how quickly the ego comes back. You know, and he, he's laying there and he's thinking, my God, I'm, I, maybe I went crazy. Maybe I had an hallucination. And he called, sent for Dr. Silkworth, who came in to visit him. And Dr. Silkworth came in and Bill said, look, this is, this is what happened. Uh, am I crazy, doctor? Am I crazy? Our fate held in the balance at this point. Was held, was hung in the balance because uh, most of the doctors I'd have known were slapped your ass through a full of Thorazine and uh, said, you know, don't worry, fella, you'll feel better tomorrow. <laughs> but Doctor Silkworth, the little doctor that loved drunks, looked deeply into Bill's eyes and said, Bill, I don't know what happened to you, but I do know that I see something in you that I have never seen before, and whatever it is, it's so much better than you had just a few hours ago. Whatever it is, hang on to it. Hang on to it. Dr. Stilkworth validated Bill's, Bill's experience because he was a wise and good and loving man who cared for this Bill Wilson who was on the bed in front of him. He cared for him. He cared for him. As much as we care one for the other. One for the other. Well, an interesting thing happened the next day. Uh, Abby shows up again because uh, he knows Bill's still in the hospital. doesn't know Bill's had this experience. And Abby's carrying a book with him. In the Oxford group at the time, they had a number of groups, uh, books that they, that they were reading that were being written around, around that time, and uh, some that had been being written earlier. But one of their favorite books was this book right here, The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. This is the only book which is mentioned in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's mentioned in Chapter 2. It's the only other book that's mentioned in our, in our book. Abby had this book because Roland Hazard, who was sort of his quasi-sponsor in the Oxford group, had made Abby get it, made him go down to the public library, much, you know, think about it, guys, just like your sponsor's done to you sometimes, think, go get that book and read it, you know. Well, he had told Abby, go get that book and read it. He'd just been grinding him about reading it. So Abby finally goes and gets the book. Abby does not want to read this book. Abby's on a visit to Bill. Abby's got this book in his hand. He's thinking, and he gets this thought, talking with Bill. Well... Maybe if I got Bill to read it, it would be sort of like me reading it. Here, Bill, read this book. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you can understand that thought process, can't you? you know? Well, Bill doesn't have much better else to do, so he starts reading this book. And I want to tell you, this is one of the truly extraordinary books of, of all time. William James, just as Freud and uh, uh, Adler and, and Carl Jung are considered the founders of psychiatry, William James is considered one of the founders of the science of psychology. He was a professor from the late 1900s. Uh, he was one of the truly great men. He uh, came up with this school of psychology or philosophy called pragmatism. In other words, look at something and see whether it works or not, which is really an American viewpoint. Approaching you look at that, that's the test that we use in America. Does it work or not? That was his idea. And in 1899, uh, William James was invited to give this Gifford series of lectures in uh, the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, which was virtually the equivalent in 1899 of receiving the Nobel Prize. It was the most prestigious thing you could get a hold of. It carried a big chunk of money with it. And once a year, they'd, hire, they'd uh, award this prize to somebody. They'd come in and give a series of lectures. And 
the series of lectures that William James chose to give was a different way of looking at religious experiences. A different way of looking at it. Before William James, uh, any book you get on religion usually starts from a point of view. It may start from a Catholic point of view, may start from the Baptist point of view, may start from a Mohammedan point of view, but it all starts from a point of view, looks at man's religious experience according to the, whoever the author's idea of how it ought to be in the first place. William James took a different thing. He says, wait a minute, let's look at what's actually happened to people who have reported that they've had vital spiritual experiences or religious experiences, and he uses spirit, religious here in the same sense we use spiritual. He says, let's look at what happened to them. Let's see what they reported. Let's see whether it did anything in their lives afterwards to see if these spiritual experiences were real. He goes through this book and examines spiritual experiences that have been recorded throughout history. You know, he talks about what happened to St. Augustine, what happened to St. Teresa of Avila, what happened to Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, St. Paul. You know, I, I personally, I, I kind of identify with St. Paul. I think he was one of us. I mean, look at it this way. He was taking a geographic cure to Damascus. He fell off his ass, or donkey, or whatever he was riding. He heard voices. He saw visions. He was struck blind. You know, and so maybe he was one of us. I don't know. But it changed his life. It changed his life. He took a whole different course. And that was the point that William James made. William James said these spiritual experiences are two different varieties. Two different varieties. Some of them happen very suddenly, like Paul on the road to Damascus or Bill in the hospital room. But some of these spiritual experiences develop slowly over a period of time. And he called those the educational variety that they develop over a period of time. But he said there's a common denominator in all of these experiences. You have to have some preconditions. You're not going to have a spiritual experience unless you have a lot of pain in your life, unless some calamities happen to you, unless you're in a, in a, in a blind alley. You've reached a point where you can't seem to get out of where you are under your own resources. And he called that deflation at depth. He called it deflation of the ego at depth. There had to be one other vital, vital thing. There had to be a simultaneous transmission of hope at the same time. Now, you'd reach the point where you couldn't get out of it. You, you were in terrible shape, but you're not going to surrender at that point. You can get despairing and you can kill yourself or you can die or you can drink yourself to death, and we've all seen people do that. There has to be simultaneously the transmission of hope. Abby coming to Bill. Me going to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why the steps one and two are so intimately related. I, James, could not take step one until I had come, come to and come to believe that maybe y'all believed in something, that I saw a way out. You see? There has to be a way out. Deflation at depth plus some transmission of hope. And that's what it happened. Bill read that. And Bill said, and listen, this guy, William James, had an understanding of alcoholics. Now, this book wasn't really about alcoholics, although a couple of the people who reported in here were alcoholics who had this experience. See if you can't identify with this. Varieties of religious experience. This is William James talking. The sway of alcohol over mankind is unquestionably due to its power to stimulate the mystical faculties of human nature. Usually crushed to earth by the cold facts and dry criticisms of the sober hour. <laughs> Think about that. Sobriety diminishes, discriminates, and says no. Drunkenness expands, unites, and says yes. It is, in fact, the great exciter of the yes function in man. 
It brings its votary from the chill periphery of things to the radiant core. It makes him for the moment one with truth. Not, do, not through mere perversity do men run after it. To the poor and the unlettered it stands in the place of the symphony concerts and of literature. And it is part of the deeper mystery and tragedy of life that whiffs and gleams of something that we immediately recognize as excellent. And he goes on to say, should be granted to us only in the earlier phases of what, in effect, becomes a poisoning. Oh. He, he, he understood what this, he talks about what alcohol did for us, for some people, those that it did the thing for. Doesn't do it for everybody. You know, but it seems to do it for alcoholics. The world is full of crazy people. I've been in some nut houses. After I get sober for a little while, I want to run the joint. I'm an alcoholic. I get questions asking, they're like, what are you doing in here? What are you doing in here? You know, because after a couple of days, we, we seem very, very normal. It's easy to tell what's wrong with them. They may not know where they are or what day it is or something like that. But alcohol doesn't get them out of their problem. Got me out of my problem like that. Got me right out of it. You know? That's the difference between the regular intense neurotic or emotionally crazy person and the alcoholic. You know, the difference between a neurotic and a, schiz- and a, and a psychotic? Psychotic, you know, is completely out of touch with reality. Psychotic thinks 2 plus 2 equals 5. The neurotic, the alcoholic, knows that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but it just worries us a great deal. Just don't like it fitting together like that. You know? Comfortable with it. Have a drink and think about it. You know? So this, this is where we are, and this is where Bill was, and he finds in this book a validation of his spiritual experience. Now, everybody else in this book, virtually, who had had that spiritual experience, connected it with religion. Paul went off to, in effect, found Christianity to the, to the Gentiles. St. Augustine uh, left the hookers and the, and, and the ballrooms and everything and became one of the great saints of the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, Booth became the founder of the Salvation Army. Wesley started the Methodist Church. You know, they, they identified it with religion. Bill identified it with Evie the drunk coming to talk to him. And his thought that day, that, that next afternoon, as he's reading this book is, maybe I can help other alcoholics. Maybe I can take this thing to others. You know, this has been brought to me. I'm a free man. I feel free for the first time in my life. I'm going to go help other alcoholics. That was his thought. Hughes gets out of the hospital, and most of us have had this experience when we finally get sober. God, we just want to go out and sober up the world. You know, we just want to go grab people and say, hey, look, I found it, you know. Well, Bill was, was worse than any of them. I mean, he got out of there, and he started going to these Oxford group meetings and telling them about this great white flash that happened. Oh, the room lit up, you know, and, and everything. And they were saying, oh, that's really nice, Bill, that's really nice. So Bill starts going around to barrooms around in New York City and pulling drunks off the stool and saying, you know, you, you got to get sober. The room lit up. And they start saying, oh, man, yeah, go, go away, go away. Right. For the next five months, Bill would drag drunks home, try to sober them up. They'd get drunk again. He, God, he just had the worst time. Not one of them got sober. Not one. And Bill is just preaching for everything. To, you know, he's just doing everything he can. And finally... Right at the end of April of 1935, Bill's about four and a half, five months sober. He comes home one day and he's really, really discouraged. And he says, I thought this thing was going to work. Tells us to Lloyd. His wife says, I thought this thing was going to work. He says, God visited me and, and I've been out and 
Not one single person is sober right now. This thing doesn't work. And Lois says, why, Bill, you are so ungrateful. Don't you realize that it does work? Bill says, what do you mean it doesn't work? Nobody's sober. She says, Bill, you're sober. We've been married for 17 years. It's the first time you've ever been sober. It's kept you sober. Bill gives the alcoholic answer like, oh, oh, okay. Bill goes and talks to Dr. Silkworth and, and tells him his problem. You know, if Lois won't listen to his whinings, you know, we all do that. You know, our sponsor won't listen to our whinings. We'll go find somebody else to whine to. So he goes and whines to Dr. Silkworth, saying, oh, I thought this thing was going to work. Dr. Silkworth says, Bill, you've been preaching to these guys. You've been going in there and telling them the room lit up. Go in and talk to them about your own experience. Tell them about your drinking. Talk to them about the fact that alcoholism is a disease. Tell them they're going to die, Bill. Don't tell them the room lit up. Hit them with the God stuff later. Bill says, oh, okay. Well, Bill didn't have a chance to do much about that because about this time, uh, you know, he's broke, wife's working, been sober four or five months, everybody, Leonard Strong, all the rest of them are putting the pressure on him, go to work, go to work, go to work. And um, so he hears this opportunity to go out to Akron, Ohio. There's a proxy fight going on. They're trying to get enough shares together uh, for a rebel group to take over the National Tire, uh, tire Equipment Manufacturing Company in, in, in Akron. They made molds that made tires. And they had a couple of patents that uh, way to press tires together in a certain way or something like that. So Bill says, well, I got a chance to do this. Plus, his ego starts returning at this point. They're saying, Bill, you get the proxies on this deal. We're going to make you president of the company. You're going to run this company. Bill starts thinking, wow, I'll make some money. I'll be all right. So he goes out there, first week of May, 1935, and uh, it's a very bitter proxy fight. And it seems as though the uh, uh, entrenched management um, was able to overcome all the objections, and they beat him. They beat him, and all of a sudden it's, it's, it's Saturday. It's May the 11th, 1935. They, uh, the guys that brought him out there have left town. His hotel bill is paid through Monday. He has $10 in his pocket. That's all. He's in the Mayflower Hotel in Akron, Ohio. Nice hotel. Been there. Went to Akron for Founders Day five years ago. And once a year they let you back in there. It's now a senior citizen center. But in 1935, it was only about a year or so old. It was one of the few buildings built in the town during the Depression. Beautiful Art Deco thing. So he's in the nice hotel in town, but he ain't got no money. Room paid through Monday. And he's depressed, and he's sad. Business has collapsed. Uh, he doesn't know anybody in Akron, knows nobody. It's about later on in the afternoon on Saturday, and he hears the people start to go into the Merry Man Lounge. That was the name of their, their bar. And he hears the tinkling of the ice being in the glasses, and he hears the laughter of people, and he sees a few good-looking women in there. Bill always had an eye for a good-looking woman. And he gets this crazy idea. He says, maybe I could go in there and have a ginger ale. Maybe I could go in there and have a ginger ale. God, I mean, this guy, you got to remember now, Bill Wilson has had God Almighty himself in his, in his hospital room five months before. And this is how quickly our ego returns, how quickly the illness returns. Five months later, he's standing outside this bar thinking I could go in there and have a ginger ale. Well, as Brownie, an old-timer in my area who's gone to her reward and gone to the big meeting, used to say, you'd, <laughs> if you go into a whorehouse, don't expect to just get kissed. No. Well, Bill's thinking about going in there. And then it occurs to him what Lois had told him. You know, you've stayed sober this period of time by help working with another alcoholic. And he thinks, where can I find another alcoholic? I don't know anybody in this town. He's wandering around the lobby. and He's going back and forth and back and forth. 
and he notices a church directory there, and a name catches his attention. Bill always likes strange names for some reason. And it was a Reverend Walter Tunks, and he thought Tunks rhymes with drunks. I'm going to call Tunks to see if he knows any drunks. So he calls Tunks and says, do you know any drunks? And Tunks says, I don't know any drunks. But then Bill explains to him he's a member of the Oxford group. And he says, why don't you call Norman Shepard? He's a local Oxford group man. He's not a drunk himself, but maybe he can give you some names. So he calls this guy Norman Shepard. And Shepard says, well, I'll give you the names of some people who might be able to put you in touch with some people. He said, uh, so he gives him a list of ten names of somebody that might help him find a drunk. And Bill goes down the list. Now here's the point. Up to this point, before my visit there in 97, I've identified intellectually with Bill. I've read his story many, many times. I've, uh, uh, you know, I finally got to round to where I could see myself in his story, but I've never identified on a gut-level basis with him. There in 97, Charlie B. and I were there at the uh, Bayflower Hotel, and, and the story's coming through because, you know, here he's gone and looked at the hotel directory. He's finally decided he's going to make these calls. He needs some change, and I start looking around. Now, the, the hotel, the, the lobby of the hotel is smaller, is about the same size or smaller than this room. Here's the church director over here. Here's the registration desk right here. Bill could have gotten change right there. There's the door for the uh, entrance to the main restaurant over there. Now, Bill could have gotten change there. There's the magazine stand over there. Bill could have gotten change there. There's the uh, little pharmacy, drugstore, and ocean shop right over here. He could have gotten change there. Then you go up a couple of steps, there's a cigar and cigarette stand Bill could have gotten changed there. Now, what does Bill, a good alcoholic, do, though? He passes all of those places up and goes into the bar, slaps a buck on the table and says, give me 20 nickels. He does exactly what any good alcoholic. I thought, my God, I would have done the same thing, you know. Bill is a real alcoholic. You know, he had to have that last little taste of, of, of the deal in there. And he called the first nine people and... Oh, they didn't know anybody, or they said, well, we'll talk to you another time, or, or we'll see you in church on Sunday, and they just they blew them off, is what happened. Then he looked at the tenth name, and it said Henrietta Cyberling. He thought, my God, I can't call the wife of the owner of the, of the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. Frank Cyberling was the owner of the Goodyear Tire. He thought Henrietta Cyberling was his, was, was his wife. And he agonized over it, and he thought, I might get drunk if I don't. I'm going to have to call her. And when he called her up, he said, I'm a rum hound, from, from, which is a term of the time. I was uh, a rum hound from New York, and I'm looking for another drunk to work with, and I'm an Oxford Group member, and, and, and I, need a, I, need a, I need another drunk to talk to. And Henrietta gave him the damnedest response. She says, well, of course you do, and I have just the man. And Bill goes, huh? And Henrietta said, I've been expecting your call. Bill, you could have knocked him over with a feather. Here's what had happened. In the local Oxford group, there was a doctor there, and his name was Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith. Dr. Smith was, uh, Bill at that time was 39. Dr. Smith was about uh, 55. He was, had at one point been an extremely prominent doctor in the town, but he had become a drunk. You know, he's the guy that Prohibition had started. He had figured he couldn't get drunk during Prohibition, so he had turned into an absolute drunk drinking during Prohibition. He had lost almost all of his practice. Uh, he was exactly the right kind of doctor to be found Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, throughout history, men have speculated on where the seat of a man's soul is. You know, the Catholics think it's in the sacred heart of Jesus, and the Buddhists think it's in the... That's the reason Buddha has a big belly. You know, they say the soul's in the belly. Well, Dr. Smith was a butt doctor. He was a proctologist, and I've come to believe in Alcoholics Anonymous that the soul is in the ass, because we save your ass, and somehow your soul comes along with it. Uh, he knew exactly where alcoholics' brains were located. Yeah. And uh, 
and he couldn't get sober. He'd been going to the Oxford group for three years. He'd fall asleep drunk reading his Bible at night. He, he, he sensed something in him sensed that it was a spiritual solution, but he couldn't get it. He couldn't get it. And finally, two weeks before, he was operating on the same principle that most of us operate on. Nobody knows about my drinking. Having an Oxford group meeting at uh, T. Henry uh, Williams' house, and he finally fesses up. says, I'm a secret drinker. I know you all don't know anything about it. Of course, you all knew about it. Hell, they could smell him. You know, if you could smell him, you can tell him. And he says, I am a secret drinker and I can't stop. And would y'all pray for me? And they all got down on their knees and prayed for a solution, including Henrietta Cyberman. Henrietta Cyberman was one of these women of immense faith. You know, these kind of people you just kind of stand in awe of. You know, they aren't in our program, but somehow they got a connection. You know, like my little grandmother in East Texas. Boy, I knew she had a connection. I never could get it, but I knew Granny had it. Well, Henrietta had it. And when she had prayed for somebody to come help Dr. Smith... She expected an answer to her prayer. So when Bill called up and said, I'm here because I need to talk to a drunk, she said, of course you are. You come right on out to my house. So he goes out to the gatehouse at the Cyberling Estate. And the Cyberling Estate is one of the grand estates in the United States. When A&E did that series on castles in America, it was one of the deals that they, they showed. You know, it's just woo, immense thing. But Henrietta was not the wife of Cyberling who owned it. She was the daughter-in-law. And... She and Cyberling's son had become divorced, but uh, Cyberling still liked her a lot, thought his son was a jerk for divorcing her, and had her living in the gatehouse uh, at the entrance to the estate. Now, the gatehouse itself is a, is a really nice two- or three-bedroom house, pretty, pretty large, beautiful place. So she was living there with the, with, with the grandchildren. And Bill came out there, and she immediately gets on the phone, calls up Ann Smith, and says, Bring Dr. Bob over. I found somebody who's got a solution for alcoholism. And says, well, I can't really bring him over right now. Tomorrow's Mother's Day. And he knows how much I like potted plants. And he has a potted plant for me. Unfortunately, he is more potted than the plant. And he has passed out underneath it. So uh, <laughs> said, maybe we can bring him over tomorrow. And uh, so the next day at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Smitty, who's Dr. Bob's son, who I've had the privilege of meeting on a number of occasions and hearing him talk. He's still very much alive today was a 16-year-old boy at the time. He drove uh, Dr. Bob and Ann over to Henrietta's gatehouse. And Dr. Bob did not want to go. He had said, I'll give this turkey 15 minutes tops. And he gets in there and, and lets Bill know that. says, I've, I've really got to go. I, I, I'll give you about 15 minutes. And Bill says the magic words. He says, you look a little shaky. You look like you probably could need a drink. Dr. Bob kind of relaxed at that point. Hey, maybe this guy does understand. But his defense mechanism was still up. They go in the library and they start talking. And here's the magic thing that saved us. That saved Dr. Baum. And saved Baum's. Dr. Baum, me, the defensive, says, Look, I'm a medical doctor. I've read up on all this stuff. What can you possibly tell me that would help me with my drinking? Bill says, Oh, you misunderstand. He says, I'm not here to help you. I'm here because... I'm about to get drunk, and I found that if I tell my story to another alcoholic, it helps me to stay sober. He says, now, I hope it'll be helpful to you. But he says, you're doing me a great favor by just allowing me to talk so that I can stay sober. You see, and that's the 12th step. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. That was Bill seeking out someone to tell his story to. And Dr. Bob relaxed, and Bill started sharing his stories there. He wasn't preaching to Dr. Bob. He was sharing his story, which is what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. What you guys were doing there Thursday night at the Robbers Roost meeting. 
that I was privileged to attend at. We were sharing our stories. We were sharing our stories. We were talking about our drinking. That 15 minutes turned into five hours. Turned into five hours. Dr. Baum later reported, he did the story, grand story, Dr. Baum's nightmare in the big book. And Bill was the first guy that ever talked to him from his own experience. And Bill, uh, Bob had gone in there shaky and nervous and scared. And Bill had gone in shaky and nervous and scared. And they came out there five hours later. They were laughing. They had their arms around each other. They said, hell, let's get together again tomorrow. You know, and Bill stayed on in the town. And, and uh, Bill and Bob got together every day. And they talked about spiritual deals and going to the Oxford group and all this kind of stuff. And got this program of action. And Bob said, I can go through all of that. He said, I can't make amends. If I go tell anybody I'm a drunk, I'll, I'll, you know, nobody's going to allow you to cut on the rear end if they think you're a drunk. And <laughs> then, as Bob reported, he developed a great thirst for knowledge. Uh, he decided he had to go to the American Medical Association Conference, which he always went to. And uh, he left to go to Atlantic City on that. And Ann Smith was very nervous about him going, said he's going to get drunk. Bill says, well, we can't stop him. He's a grown man. You know, we, we, he's got to find out whether he can stay sober. He was drunk before the, before the train left Akron. Three or four days later, doesn't even remember the trip, comes back, nurse has to come down to the station to pick him up. Bill and Ann sober him up over the next two days because he's going to have to do an operation on Monday because they were broke. Doctors in those days did not make the money they make today. His mortgage was about to be foreclosed. There was literally no food on the table. He had to do that operation to put food on the table, period. In the morning of June 10th, 1935, Bill got him up early and uh, fed him a beer to quiet his nerves down. And Bob looked at him and says, I'm ready to go through this thing. He says, the operation? Bob says, no, that thing you've been telling me about. He says, I realize now that I have to do the whole deal. And Bill gave him another beer on the way to the, uh, to the hospital. And then Bill went back to the house and they waited and they waited and went by. And pretty soon it was uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And Bill and, and Ann were certain that Dr. Bob had gotten drunk because they hadn't heard from him. You know, this is the day before cell phones, can't you just call him up? And Bob appeared and he had a big smile on his face. I said, where you been, Bob? He says, I've been out mending fences. I've been out talking to the people that I've harmed and letting them know that I've had a problem with my drinking, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to make restitution. He was willing to go through with the deal. And we did our founding moment. Our founding from that date, June the 10th, 1935. See, we don't date it from the day of Bill's last drink on December the 11th, 1934. Uh, when Bill got sober, we don't date it on the date of Bill's spiritual experience, December 14, 1934. We date it from the date that one alcoholic working with another alcoholic resulted in two people being sober. And the first aid group was founded at that point, even though they didn't realize it. The next day, or perhaps the day afterwards, Dr. Bob said, you know, we better get to working with some other, with some other drunks. We get to pass this thing on or, or we're not going to stay sober. You know, I mean, he had just gotten sober himself. Within another week, they found Bill Dotson in the, uh, in the hospital. Another guy gets sober. Uh, they had a couple of guys that they worked with that didn't get sober. They got their first the young newcomer in, a guy named, named Ernie. Ernie was the first relationship in Alcoholics Anonymous. He ended up marrying Dr. Bob's daughter, Sue. <laughs> they didn't get divorced later. Uh, Bill stayed on for the summer, and pretty soon the beginnings of Alcoholics Anonymous had started. And you see, we had this thing in place, and, and 
they were really kind of flying blind. They had these Oxford group principles, they had these principles of recovery, but they sensed right from the start that it was absolutely essential to work with other alcoholics to maintain their own sobriety. They knew they must gather some uh, others about them, or they could, or they could not, or they could not stay sober themselves. They had to carry the message, and they didn't have a clue of how to do this except just trial and error. They went out looking for drunks. Went down to hospitals. You know, Bob had gone to the hospital there to, to get Bill D. Went up to the nurse, said, uh, uh, "Do you have a, a drunk we work with? We've got a we've got a new cure for alcoholism." The nurse said, Doctor, have you tried it on yourself? <laughs> you know, we think nobody's ever noticed about these deals, but they notice. <laughs> they, they notice. Okay. We see in place now the principles of our, of our, our recovery program. And we will develop these things over the next couple of years. But now we're getting into a different area. We're getting into the area of one alcoholic absolutely needing another alcoholic. We're starting to get into the fellowship now. We're starting to get into, and I love this, so, you know, I started the meeting off just the other night that uh, when y'all asked me to chair that meeting, one of my favorite statements out of, out of, out of the big book. Page 163. Read it again. Some of you may not have been there. Besides, I need to hear it again. I like to hear this one all the time. It says, when a, when a few men in the city have found themselves, have found themselves, isn't that what happened when we came to Alcoholics Anonymous? We found ourselves. I met a stranger when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that stranger was myself. I was lost. I found myself here. You know there's a box up here that says lost and found? I guess it's for the kids here at this school. AA's the big lo biggest lost and found in the world. I came here lost, and I found myself here. Since when a few men in the city have found themselves and have discovered the joy of helping others to face life again, there will be no stopping until everyone in that town has had his opportunity to recover, if he can and will. And that's what Bill and Bob started out on. They're in Akron. Still, you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that, so you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. We do have benefit of contact with the people who wrote this book, because they wrote the book. And they carried the message to somebody else who carried the message to somebody else who's carried the message to us. And God willing, we'll stay sober and carry it to generations yet unborn. Yet unborn. And then this paragraph finishes up with what is for me. One of the great promises of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the most profound promises. And it becomes more so and more precious to me the longer I stay sober. The next sentence says he. That means God. Will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. So he thought I was craving the alcohol out there. Oh, he thought I was craving the alcohol. But we've been through uh, Carl Jung's letter and, and William James's and, and the message that Abby carried to Bill. I thought I was craving alcohol, but what I was craving was something to fill this, this, this big hole inside. Something to get rid of this, this loneliness that is surrounding me. I always felt lonely, apart, and different, and separate. And I especially felt that way in a crowd. And no matter what costume I'd put on, and no matter what I would attempt to fill this hole with, you know, I, I set out to fill it with success. It was going to be the, the next honor, the next prize that came my way. And I would get the prize, and that wouldn't be enough, and I'd have to go to the next one. It would always be more money, and I'd go out and try to make that. 
It was always going to be the next woman, the next honor, the next thing. Yet I never felt like I fit and belonged. And I was always willing to change the costume. You know, I didn't know where I fit, where I belonged. And I felt my loneliness in the crowd. Crowd. It was never enough. You know, I, I, I remember one day in 1975 when I was still with a big law firm. I had cocktails with the President of the United States at noon at Antoine's restaurant with the President of the United States. And by midnight that night, I was drinking shots and beers with the President of the Galloping Goose's Motorcycle Club. You know? <laughs> I didn't feel like I fit and belonged in either place. You know, I was too good to be with the bad people and too bad to be with the good people and I didn't fit here and I didn't fit there and where do I fit and where do I belong? It was a fellowship that I craved and I couldn't find it because I had this alcoholic emptiness and loneliness. I wanted to be a part with both of them. I liked both of them, but I couldn't be. I couldn't be. And Bill and Bob set out to create this fellowship without really knowing it, without knowing that they were going to have to create the fellowship. You see, this is where we're going to start getting into how A developed and how our traditions, the glue that holds us together, the reason that we're here together is Cuyamaca? Uh, how do you pronounce the name of Cuyamaca. Cuyamaca Camp in California this, this weekend. You know, we're, we're all hanging together here. Well, how, how, did all, how did all this get, get started? How did all this get started? What, what happened to create this growth of Alcoholics Anonymous from two guys, from two trunks? <coughs> On June the 10th, 1935, till today, worldwide, we have approximately 3 million members worldwide and over 100,000 groups scattered all across the world. What has created this fellowship? Some of you have been to international conventions. I know you all had one here in, in San Diego in, in 1995. I, I attended the one in Seattle in 90. wasn't able to make the one here in 95. My mother had a stroke shortly before it. And, uh, you know, we had some, had some serious problems in the family. But there's a remarkable story that some people who were there related to me that happened at the 95 event. You know, at the Olympics they have a flag ceremony where the countries, the athletes marching with the flags and, uh, and the countries, and they have a hell of a time figuring out what order they're going to march in because, you know, the South Koreans won't march in with the North Koreans and the Iraqis won't march in with the Iranians and the, nobody wants to be next to Israel. And, you know, you just get right on down the line. Everybody's got their own little politics and stuff like that. L.A., we just do it alphabetically. We just do it alphabetically. So Iran, Iraq, and Israel all come in at the same time. And from what I'm told, that as soon as the flag ceremony was over, they draped their three flags down together, and they all got in a circle together and said the Lord's Prayer. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. That's something that isn't found in the rest of the world. You know, that's out there... <laughs> very much me in the news today trying to trying to destroy each other. Now we found a different way to do it. We found a different way to do it. Well let's look at let's look and see what happens, see how our how our how our traditions develop, how this way of holding together develops. Because you can't stay sober in a vacuum. You know, I talked earlier about the fact that you know we get spirit on the, we get sober on the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous. We remain sober by practicing the principles through taking the steps of the program of recovery of alcoholics and all. We have a, have, have a place to make that program of recovery our way of life. If we don't, we're going to drink again. You know, we, we, we saw that at the meeting Thursday night. There was a guy in there playing and he's been getting drunk time and time again. You know, he's been hanging away from the deal, you know. We've seen that time and time and time and time again. Yeah. 
Y'all have seen the symbol of AA, circling the triangle. Bill Wilson said in 1955 at the 55 International Convention, where that symbol, the circle and the triangle was introduced, he says, above us, this is page 139 of A comes of age, above us floats a banner on which is inscribed the new symbol for Alcoholics Anonymous, the circle within a triangle. The circle stands for the whole world of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the triangle stands for A's three legacies of recovery, unity, and service. Within our wonderful new world, we have found freedom from our fatal obsession. That we have chosen this particular symbol is perhaps no accident. The priests and seers of antiquity regarded the circle enclosing the triangle as a means of warding off the spirits of evil. And A's circle and triangle of recovery, unity, and service has certainly meant that to all of us and more. Actually, Bill had been on a visit to Norway a couple of years before and had seen that in a stained glass window in a Lutheran church in Norway. No, and it struck him, and he asked about it. And it meant more than just a symbol to ward off evil. It's an ancient spiritual symbol that actually goes back to the uh, Greek Pythagoras, the guy who invented the science of geometry. Some of you had to suffer through, along with me, the geometry in high school, and you learned about the Pythagorean theorem, you know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. You know, well, back in those days, they attached a lot of mysticism to their geometry and mathematics and stuff, and their symbol for body, mind, and spirit united as one was a, was, was a triangle within a circle. Because the triangle is the, is the strongest uh, geometric figure known because if an equal lateral triangle, none of the sides can bend. The sides can bend. So it's uniting of, of body, mind, and spirit as one, which is recovery, unity, and service. We have to have all three of those things, or we just simply don't make it. We have to have a program of recovery, a fellowship to share it in, and we have to be able to give back what we've gotten through through service, through helping each other, through making the coffee back here and picking up the cigarette butts and setting up the chairs and taking them down and going to the counter and picking up the pizza. You know, had to find a way of service here. Well, let's see how let's see how our deal developed. We got Bill and Bob there in uh, uh, in Akron, and uh, uh, they've added one or two guys. You know, uh, several more got drunk. A guy named Paul Stanley comes in, and his brother comes in, and pretty soon they got a new place. By the time Bill left the end of the summer, they had four or five guys there. Bill goes on back to New York. This time with a whole new way of looking at things, because he's actually seen it work. He's seen that it's possible to gather some people around them. And they, they weren't having any means. They didn't even know what to call themselves. They thought maybe they were in the Oxford group. They weren't real sure about it. They were going to an Oxford group meeting every Wednesday night at T. Henry and Clarice Williams, who were not at themselves alcoholic at home. The irony of that is that T. Henry Williams was in effect the inventor and owner of the company that Bill had just tried to take over in that failed proxy fight. <laughs> but whoever that was a great guy, just welcomed Bill on into the home, you know. And uh, in A, we have no monopoly on, on bigness of spirit, you know. And Bill gets back to New York and he starts working and he doesn't have quite the success that Bob does. Evidently, Dr. Bob was, he was called the Prince of Twelve Steppers and he really had a talent for working with wet drunks. And Bill never quite developed that same talent. But Bill hung in there and plugged in there and, and Bill's strategy was to go down to Towns Hospital and, and start through the various drunks and nutsos and whatever there and try to, try to uh, bring a few around. He'd start bringing them around to Clinton Street and trying to sober them up there and most of them would get drunk. But a couple of significant things happened. The publicity man for Standard Oil of New Jersey, which later became Exxon, uh, real power driver named Hank Parkhurst, got sober and in New York. 
Then a guy from Washington, D.C. named Fitzmayer gets soaked. And all of a sudden, they got a little nucleus there. They got three guys instead of just one guy. You see how it grows? That's when my group grew. You know, me and Dave, they're reading the big book one week, and Charlie B. comes the next, and Buddy comes, and, and I'm sure Robert Roos started this much the same way. So, one, two, identification, you start doing the deal, pretty soon we're starting to hang together. See, tradition one, we're starting to hang together. We're finding necessary to hang together. Well, they started developing this little group there. Didn't have really a program recovery, just talking Oxford group principles, going to the Oxford group. They did have some literature that they were reading. You know, when I went to my first convention, I'll just, I'll just throw this in here for what it's worth. A uh, speaker was speaking and he, he touched a little bit on a history. I was four months sober. His name was Eddie L. He got sober out in California and now been in New Jersey for many years. I went up to him afterwards and said, Eddie, what did Bill and Bob read? I mean, they didn't have uh, the big book. They hadn't written it yet. They, they didn't have any of this or other stuff. What, what did they read? Where, where did they get all this stuff from? And Eddie said, and I'll confirm this then from all of these other sources and books that I've recommended to you up here, mostly conference-approved literature, and some that aren't conference-approved, but neither are they conference-disapproved. Uh, Eddie said, well, they primarily had this. They had the varieties of religious experience, which I've shown to you up here. And incidentally, this book, uh, these lectures in 1899, were published in book form in 1902. It's 100 years later, and you can still walk into any respectable bookstore in the country. Uh, B. Dalton books, so... Uh, any of those big booksellers, you can buy this book. hundred years later, it's still in print. He said they were also reading a book called Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount was written by a guy named Emmett Fox, who was a, you can't really call him a preacher, although he spoke a great deal of Christianity, uh, but he spoke of it in a very spiritual sense, and he was an extremely popular man in the 30s, as popular, say, as Billy Graham was, say, in the, in the 80s or 90s. You know, sometimes thousands, you know, he, several times he filled Madison Square Garden with people coming to hear his lectures. He was really an electrical chemical engineer from England who had made a lot of money, and, and he'd written this book, Sermon on the Mount, and it was very popular. It was published in 1934, and he said the other two sources was the book of James and the Bible, which talks about faith without works being dead, and the necessity of actually taking action. And the 13th chapter of Paul to the Corinthians, which talks about love. And he said, that's basically the sources that, that they use. So, I looked out of there and I went and got some more to read those. And you can imagine with my ego, which one I read first, I thought, Book of James had a catchy title. I like that title. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm still trying to get well, you know. <laughs> and I read Sermon on the Mount. I recommend it to everybody. It was an eye-opener for me. One that came in here was horrible resentments and confusion about religion. And Emmett Fox says in the preface to, to the thing, some of us guys were talking about this yesterday, says in the preface to this thing, Jesus Christ taught no theology. All of his teachings were entirely spiritual and metaphysical, and all the theology was added later. And then it goes through the Sermon on the Mount, which is a lot of our programs. It talks about, don't bring your gift to the altar, go get reconciled with your brother, go make amends with your brother before you bring the gift. You know, Talk about whatever going around comes around contains the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's I, I got something out. It just gave me a new viewpoint. What it's a but altered attitudes. You know, I had to alter my attitudes to find my own concept of a higher power, which was simply AA when I first got here. And I started having to look for something. That's what they looked in. I'm just throwing it out. It may float your boat. It may not. But this is what these guys were doing. They were searching for a way to put this program together. Oh. Hey, grew slowly in, uh, uh, in, in New York. Uh, everybody was broke. Nobody had a job. 
Uh, it grew a little bit faster in Akron. A couple of years went by. And the first couple of significant things started happening in the fellowship. Now, during this period of time, Lois has still got a job. Bill's spending all his time working with drunks. Every once in a while he comes upon a little stock deal, but he ain't making no money. Dr. Bob isn't making any money. In 1937, Charlie Towns, a Towns Hospital. Now, Towns has been making a fortune back in the 20s and the early 30s, but now it's an absolute depth of depression. He's not making any money. He gets the idea that if he hires Bill Wilson, who started this deal, as a lay therapist, um, he can really make some money. So he offers Bill a job and a share of the profits. And Bill just, wow, I'm home free, you know. Most newcomers want to be a counselor, you know. God gets Bill is no different. <laughs> he gets all enthusiastic because he's thinking, man, I can get well out of this department store. We're going to make a lot of money at this hospital and everything. And he's just thinking this is wonderful. And he just can't wait to tell the guys at the group. You know, there's six or eight guys in the group now on Tuesday night at the meeting. And he goes in there and starts telling about, I'm going to work for Charlie Towns. And by God, we're going to be this. And he's telling them. And he looks around and all of a sudden he realizes that they're not too happy with this. They're kind of downcast. They aren't as excited as he's excited. Even Lois, when he told her, wasn't all that excited. And finally, one of them speaks up and says, Bill, Bill, we, we've been giving this thing away. If we start charging for it, we're going to ruin the deal, Bill. Bill, we can't get professional. If we do that, think of all the drugs we're going to die. Bill, you've been telling us it's a good, sometimes the enemy is the best. Now, Bill, we know, you know, you're broke, we're broke. We know you ain't got any money. But Bill, this could, this could ruin the whole deal. If, if, if you go out and start ad advertising your services and charging for it. And slowly Bill came to realize as they went around the room that this idea would not float. And he came to accept the group's decision. And this is the first great example of, the, of an alcoholic listening to the group conscience. Listening to the group conscience. And Bill changed his actions in regard to it. You know, he couldn't lose the group. The group was the most important thing. And somehow the group had spoken to him and said, Bill, we, we, just, we just can't do this deal. We can't sell what we've got. They didn't call it that day then. A couple of months later, Bill went out and visited Dr. Bob out in Akron. And they got together in their room, in, they, in the living room at uh, the little house there on Audemore Avenue. I visited that house when I was out at Founders Day. It's, it's not a very large house. Nice little house, but it's, it's small. I say doctor didn't have a lot of money in those days. And they started counting noses. And, you know, this one had gotten drunk, that one hadn't. And all of a sudden they realized they had almost 40 people that had substantial sobriety. And this had never happened before. You know, no alcoholics had stayed sober for a period of time. They had a couple of guys that had stayed sober more than a year. Uh, Bill was sober at that point uh, almost three years. Dr. Bob was sober two and a half. They had a couple of other guys, Paul and, and the other Stanley guy were sober a year and a half. They had some others that had 90 days or 120 days or something. Man, this thing's going to work. And, and Bill Mumbo said, well, yeah, but uh, uh, gosh, uh, it's taken us for two and a half years to get 37 people. How much longer is it going to take? We, we've got to do something. You know, we, we need to get some uh, the literature together. We need to get some literature together. Maybe we ought to write a book. Maybe we need to get, and we can't get anybody into hospital. This is back in the day before hospitals discovered insurance, you know, and they didn't want drunks in there. Drunks did not pay the bills, you know. Uh, Dr. Bob was sobering up some people at St. Thomas Hospital uh, there, 
through the good offices of Sister Ignatia who was letting him come in there. But they were really kind of sneaking him in under other diagnoses. And uh, it was only through the tolerance of, 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 of the good Catholics there at St. Thomas Hospital that we were able to sneak what drunks in there that we could. So they said, well, what we, we need a chain of hospitals to sober up drunks. Um, we're too few to go out and carry the message, so what we need is some paid missionaries, and of course, we'd be getting our salary too, to go out and carry the message, and we need a book. So they called a meeting. Second example of the group conscience. They called a meeting of the people there in Akron. Approximately 19 or 20 people showed up for that meeting. Maybe a couple more, maybe a couple less. And they talked, and they talked. And by the slimmest margin, because the conservative advocates, you know, I've heard it said that if Dr. Bob had been the only founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, he was so conservative that you had to go to Akron, Ohio to find him. If Bill Wilson had been the sole founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, he had a franchise it like Burger King. There'd be little stands on every corner in the nation. You know, that was the difference. Bill was the promoter. Dr. Bob, solid, solid man. Solid as a rock. Very cautious. Very cautious. They played perfectly together. These are the two men that at the end of their lives said, he and I never had an argument. We needed both kinds. They had that discussion that night, and by a margin of barely two, the group said, all right, we'll, we'll approve writing a book. We'll approve uh, the hospitals and all this money you want to raise. But Bill, since you're in New York and all the money's in New York, if you think you can go raise the money, you go raise it. <laughs> Which is kind of easy out. Bill goes back to New York and thinks, well, I know all these people that are worth millions. I'll be able to get some money. And he goes out and starts trying to raise money. Doesn't raise a dime doesn't raise a dime. I mean, he'll go talk to these rich people and they'll say, yeah, but isn't saving drunks kind of like uh, sweeping up the shavings on the shop floor, you know? He said, wouldn't it be better to give the money to the Red Cross or the Polio Association? And he just kind of blew him off and sent him out of there. We were just not that popular back in those days. Hell, we're not that popular today. Think about it. Uh, Bill was expressing his dismay to Dr. Dr. Leonard Strong, his brother-in-law, and uh, said to him, well, all these rich people are blowing me off and we can't get any money to get this started. We've got to get some money so we can get this book written. And Another one of these little wonderful coincidences that meant so much to Alcoholics Anonymous. Strong said, well, you know, there was a gal I used to date when I was in high school and her father was Dick Richardson, and Dick Richardson is one of John D. Rockefeller's right-hand men. And maybe I'll call him up and find out if there's any way to, to, to get into that. And Strong called up Richardson, who he hadn't seen in a decade or more, maybe 10, 15 years. And Richardson remembered him right away. Richardson was one of those grand men. He later became one of the greatest friends Alcoholics Anonymous had, became one of our non-alcoholic trustees. He said, oh yeah, I remember you. And Strong said, well, my, uh, my brother-in-law has come up with a way to sober up drunks. And I knew that John D. Rockefeller was interested in, in alcoholism and that sort of thing. And uh, I'd just like to see if, uh, if y'all be interested in talking. Rich said, come right over. Come right over. Bill gets all excited. My God, we'll get next to Rockefeller money. Now, in those days, Rockefeller was the richest man in the world. It'd be like going over to Bill Gates' house today. Uh, I mean, Rockefeller had the money. And he was making a profession of giving it away. He had established the first super great foundations to give away money. He was just making a career of, of endowing this and paying for that and, and, and giving the money away. Bill heads on over there. A couple other guys head on over there. 
they go up to the Rockefeller boardroom, uh, meet with Richardson, who was, met him very kindly, brought a couple of other Rockefeller people in, says, Mr. Rockefeller was just here, he wants to hear about all this. So Bill tells him about the whole deal, tells him they need to raise the money to write the book, they need to raise the money to pay off, get some hospital deals, do all this kind of stuff. And these men around Rockefeller, just, uh, you know, these, these are his top lieutenants, these are very wealthy men in their own right, all get really excited and say, yeah, this is a wonderful deal, this is a wonderful deal. And they sent a delegation over to Akron to see how this thing is really working. And a guy named Frank Amos and some others went over to Akron, checked it around, checked out Dr. Bob Pulley and said, God, I'll call it anonymous. Uh, they didn't call it that at that time. They didn't know what thing to call it. This deal is working. We're going to recommend to Mr. Rockefeller that he give an initial grant of $50,000. Now, in today's prices, that would be like dropping a couple million on you at least, maybe I mean, $50,000 in 1937, late 37, was a lot of money. And it was at that point that our bacon really got saved. Because when they came back and presented that report to John D. Rockefeller, and this is a man who had made a profession out of giving away as much money as he possibly can, who has helped every worthy cause in the country, he reads their report about the guys getting sober and what's happening over there in the deal, and he said, Wow! I am really moved by this. This is fabulous. This is wonderful. I think money is ruined. I think if I put some money into this deal, I would professionalize it. I'm not going to be the one to ruin this deal. I'm not going to give him any money. Bill was really crestfallen. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make an exception. To this extent, Dr. Bob's mortgage is about to be foreclosed on. They owe $3,000 on that. I'm going to put $5,000 in the treasury of the Riverside Church with instructions to pay off Dr. Bob's mortgage so his house doesn't get far closed. And the other $2,000, dole it out $20 or $30 a week to Bill and Bob until it lasts, and then don't ask me for any more. So he gave him a little help. He kept Dr. Bob's house from being foreclosed. The big bucks they were expecting weren't there. Bill starts promoting. He starts promoting. starts trying to organize these other guys around Rockefeller into an alcoholic foundation, which is a precursor to our Alcoholics Anonymous board uh, today and they get around they start trying to raise money because they're going to write this book and they don't raise any money and nobody wants to give them any money and, and so Hank Parker says well let's form our own company and sell stock in it to finance the book so they go get a set of stock certificates and they write on their works publishing company and this company was never incorporated under the laws of New York or anything else, and they go out and start selling stock certificates, mostly to the drunks, mostly on credit, for $25 a share in a company that doesn't exist. And you all like to see it. I got a copy of one of those stock certificates up here someplace. I'm And uh, <laughs> but slowly they could raise a few bucks here and a few bucks there, and the big book began to be written. The big book began to be written in 1938. So we're already seeing some beginnings and ways that we had to be different. That we had to be different. God was working in these deals. Because here's a guy that makes a business out of giving away money. He says, no, money would ruin this deal. I'm not going to give him any money. We see the opportunity for Bill and others to become professionals in the deal. They say, no, no, you can't be professional. We're learning... They were learning that they had to start listening to each other. And, and growth in this period was hard. They start putting the book together. You know, it took most of 1938 to put the book together. Uh, they finally got down to December of 38. The 12 steps hadn't been written. 
the other parts of the book had been written. Bill sat down on a cold December day in 1938 and uh, asked for God's help. And on that night wrote 12 steps to Prologue of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's marked a significant departure from the, from the sort of formula of the Oxford group, which was never written down in any, any sequence. I know sometimes in history you say, well, the Oxford group had six steps, what Abby took to Bill. That's really not correct. Nowhere in Oxford group literature will you find those things written down as six steps. These are some concepts that Roland Hazard had gotten that he'd kind of passed on to Abby. They seemed to be circulating more among the drunks in the Oxford group than anybody else, and the Oxford group didn't like drunks very much. We were noisy, we were disreputable, we were apt to show up drunk at one of their meetings, and they did not like that. They were very muchly an upper middle class, very proper sort of movement, and they didn't like that very much. They liked us very much. We slowly had to start pulling away from them. You know, it's not to say that they were bad people, but they were very different people. They were out to save the world, and we were out to save drunk. We had a primary purpose. We had a singleness of purpose. We had almost a monomania. A monomania is where you just have got manic about one thing, and that was helping other alcoholics. And to this day, 66 years later, that's our monomania, is helping other alcoholics. Somehow or other, though, this, these steps got written. These steps got written. Bill said he wanted to plug up the holes in the little formula that they had used, and to some extent he did. But he added two things in there that were very significant, that really aren't found, you know, there's there a lot of good historians on this deal. There's a guy named Dick Burns out in Hawaii that's written book after book after book showing the biblical sources of Alcoholics Anonymous and how it all came from the Oxford group and other people were willing to show that it came from here and came from there. It came from a lot of different places. But it's very different from all of that. Best analogy I could think of is this. I mean, because, yeah, a lot of our stuff, especially in our 12 steps, came directly from the Bullington Christian readings. A couple of things, though, even Dick Burns, is, he's a good guy, as much an advocate as he is, it all came to the Bible, he himself has to admit that you won't find step six and seven formulated that way in any literature anywhere. I prefer to think that these steps, which are the, for the linchpins of our program, these are the steps where it's not enough to go and talk to your sponsor, or your counselor, or anything else about all the things that you've done and whatever, unless you're willing to start making some changes in your life and calling upon some power outside of yourself, because you know you can't change change evidently just occurred to Bill I prefer to think they were divine inspiration I prefer to think that, that, that a hand greater than Bill's was guiding Bill that night when he, when, he wrote, when, he wrote those, when he wrote those steps but one way or another that book got published incredible chain of circumstances I mean just more BS it's a wonderful story we don't have time for it today I could spend an hour and a half up here telling you the story of the big book it's fascinating but somehow or other, in April 1939, the book came together. The book came together. At that time, Bill says, and here, you can already see the beginnings at that point of the traditions. The forward to the first edition says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Show this precisely how we recover the purpose of this book. It shows already at that point that AA was starting to realize that it had to be different. Just before traditions were written or anything. The forward goes on to say, and you can read this in your big book, it is important that we remain anonymous because we're too few at present to handle the overwhelming number of personal peers which may result in publication. This is an early form of tradition 11. 
says, being mostly business professional folk, we could not carry on well our occupations in such an event. But I can understand that our alcoholic work is an avocation. Something, an avocation is just something, simply something you do on the side. That's the beginning of Tradition 8. It says, when writing or speaking publicly about alcoholism, we urge each of the fellowship to omit his personal name, designating himself instead as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, Tradition 11. It says, we ask the press to observe. It says, we're not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. Tradition 9. Says there are no dues whatsoever, Tradition 7. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. That's Tradition 3. Now, we had to change that when we finally decided that there just weren't any honest newcomers. You know, just honest <laughs> desire to stop drinking, you know. We decided to settle for any kind of desire to stop drinking. You know, Bill even says in an article in Grapevine that we'll even settle for a suspicion that you have a drinking problem. In fact, that, my group uses that phrase. We say, you know, it, when we're announcing our closed meeting, we say, if you know or even suspect, that you have a problem with your drinking. You know, we're willing to sell for any kind of a desire. But then they were talking about an honest desire. And so we see, it says, we're not allied with any particular faith, sect, or denomination, or to oppose any one's tradition 6 and 10. Simply, we wish to be helpful, tradition 5. Uh, we could see in 1939, when this book was published, that we were already doing some things differently from other organizations. Because... And I'm going to wrap this up in just a minute or two. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and, and go through the the actual actual twelve traditions. Yeah, you need to know where they came from. Know where they came from. The Oxford groups of the day had tried to do things differently. We saw earlier I've mentioned to you in that first publication, that Harold Bigby book, where they omitted all their names. But then Frank Bookman said, "No, this isn't right. We need to publicize ourselves. We need to go and, and get famous people to join. We need to give our names out so that we can." Uh, using his phrase, change a man, change a nation, change the world. We're going to go out and get key people to do this. We're going to seek all the public, and it worked well for a while. They had one meeting in the Hollywood, Hollywood Bowl in, uh, in, in, I think it was 1938, where they attracted 30,000 people. They filled Madison Square Garden several times. We're talking about a significant spiritual movement. It was well known. But pretty soon the problems of money, property, and prestige, and who was running what came into the forefront. The anonymity. They didn't have rotation leadership. Frank Butman was running it. And in 1938, Hitler was running amok in the world. And Frank Butman got the grand idea that he was going to go try to convert Hitler. Well, nobody saw that too well, you know. Butman visits Hitler. <coughs> Folks didn't like that too much. Adverse publicity started happening. Oxford University which was, of course, in England, did not like <coughs> Butman visiting Hitler, and they said, stop using the name Oxford groups or we will sue you. Before that, it had been great. You know, Oxford University, you're using that. No, we don't want you to. You see, all these things started happening, and the Oxford groups started imploding. I have listened to a tape by a guy named Jimmy Howe, he's about four or five years old. Jimmy Howe came into the Oxford group in, in 1932. He's still alive today. He not an alcoholic, and he talks about the fact that uh, he loves alcoholics now. He said, y'all are too limited in your viewpoint. You're too limited in the way you look at things. All you're trying to do is save drunks. You should be like the Oxford group. We're out to save the world. Well, here it is 66 years later. We set out just to save drunks, and there are three million of us in this world today. The Oxford group set out to save the world. Has anybody in this room ever met anybody or heard of anybody who's in it today? I haven't. I haven't. Let's take a break. We'll come back and go through the 12 traditions. Thank you.